Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And Alice, guess what? What? We have two excellent guests with us for this episode, and I I could not be happier to welcome them. Uh, Allie, Drew, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Allie. Uh, I am a podcaster, a performer, a writer, um, kind of a, an amalgamation of things. I am married to Drew, who is also our guest uh, today, and uh, I uh, spent some time working in attractions at Universal Studios Orlando. Uh, as well as being in entertainment at Universal Orlando. And hi, I'm Drew Merzieski. Um I am uh, married to Ali. That's my biggest accomplishment in life. <laughs> He's and legally obligated to say I'm, that every time we do a podcast. I am. It's in. It's in our vows. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, standard standard podcast. Standard <laughs> standard vows. That's that's, that's the way it goes. Um, but I also am a creative. Uh, I write. I act. I uh, worked at the theme parks in Orlando. I worked at Universal Studios, and I worked at uh, Walt Disney World as well. And uh, I just have a, a general love for immersion theater and tabletop RPGs and all that nerdy stuff. Yeah, you guys are both uh, tabletop RPG podcast luminaries, uh, which is a, an oh, especially gosh. apt word. <laughs> kind uh, thing to say. <laughs> uh, having, having just won several Audioverse Awards for your work on Skyjack's Courier's Call, uh, which, you know, uh, listeners of that show will know that luminary is a great word. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know... I, I, I'm really interested in your uh, the intersection between your experience as cast members or team members uh, and your your current creative work. So I, I cannot say how excited I am to talk to you guys today. Uh, and Allie, you said that you have just the most uh, deep of connections to one very important attraction at Universal Studios islands of adventure in orlando florida uh it's called poseidon's fury colon escape from what is the it? lost city okay <laughs> yes um, a, an attraction that alice and i have absolutely not gotten to go on because uh the east coast is a, a strange uh and mystical place to us uh, but <laughs> but you were talking about how this attraction was just so special to you and it kind of feels like it would be, right? Based on your your current creative interests and also what that attraction is. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, a little bit of history, not too much. Um, Poseidon's Fury is a very unique in many ways and stands out to uh, theme park nerds everywhere as being uh, the first thing of its kind in many ways and, and you know, the only thing of its kind in, in others. Um, Poseidon's Fury is a walkthrough live action encounter slash show uh, in which the guests are ushered into the ruins of an ancient temple, which is the site of an archaeological dig. Um, There are signs of, you know, an ancient society all over the walls as you wander through the queue, which is very dimly lit and there is spooky ambient sound happening. kind of giving off the vibe of like, is it a haunted house? Is it not a haunted house? Who knows? Let's roll the dice. <laughs> um, you you enter in and um, in the current uh, 
I should say the, the, the latest iteration of Poseidon's Fury, um, the guests are met in uh, an antechamber uh, by uh, an, an associate of the Global Discovery Group, which is the fictional archaeological organization that is digging. Um, the associate's name is Taylor, and he or she or they uh, welcome the guests as part of Professor Baxter's tour um, which is scheduled for today, but unfortunately, Professor Baxter has gone missing. Actually, everyone is missing. Oh, um, oh Taylor no. is the only one who who seems to be around at the moment. Um, and there have been weird lights flickering and rumbles deep within the earth. And Taylor is, to say the very least, incredibly inept uh, and has <laughs> no idea what's going on. Um, Taylor uh, then makes a mistake by discovering during one of the blackouts uh, a, a hidden message on the wall, um, which they then read out loud to the guests, causing uh, an ancient evil to awaken within the Temple of Poseidon um, by the name of Darkinon. Uh, and sounds Dar evil. <laughs> sounds real evil. Um, Darkinon then speaks to Taylor and the guests and threatens them uh, if they do not find Poseidon's trident for him that all of their lives will be forfeit. Uh, Taylor uh, naturally freaks out a little bit. The guests freak out a little bit if everything goes well. And um, and then Darkanon opens a secret passage in the wall to another room, a hidden chamber in, uh, in the temple. Taylor and the guests move through the wall into the next room, which is full of cobwebs, treasure, weapons, skeletons wearing armor, um, you name it, this room is full of stuff. And Taylor and the guests examine the things, um, but are wary of, you know, booby traps naturally, because that's the first thing that comes to mind when you walk into a room full of treasure and spiderwebs. And uh, the the voice of Darkanon addresses them again, demanding that they find the trident. When Taylor insists that they really don't know where it is, uh, Darkanon closes the, the the hidden passage behind them, trapping them inside uh, as, as part of this mortal threat. Um, Taylor, determined to get the guests out and terrified for their life, accidentally finds the trident um, and tries to use it to pry open the wall, but instead summons the Oracle of the Temple, another oh. voiceover. Um, this one is also projected on one of the walls uh, through magic. And the oracle says, "Good." in so many words, this is not how the, the oracle speaks like this and speaks in <laughs> rhyming couplets. Of course. Um, naturally. And basically <laughs> congratulates Taylor on finding the trident um, and says, you know, I can't get you out of here, but I can get you deeper into the temple. And Taylor's like, no, please let us go home. That's really not what we want. And the, the Oracle's like, sorry, that's all. That's the best I can do. So the Oracle calls upon the power of Poseidon. There are some special effects that take place. And then uh, the wall rotates to reveal the face of Poseidon. Like, it's like a puzzle. It's hard to describe. There are concentric circle rings on the wall that rotate in opposite directions until suddenly the, the carved relief of Poseidon's face is revealed. And then that wall disappears to reveal a tunnel, um, at which point Taylor runs to inspect the tunnel, which then fills with water, spinning at such a rate that it allows people to walk through it. Um, but it is real water and it is a real tunnel. And so Taylor ushers the guests through with the trident. They find themselves in another antechamber. Uh, 
Taylor, at this point, pretty sure this is a dead end. Not sure what else to do. There's another design on the wall, but Taylor's not sure what kind of magic words or secret passwords might be used. Um, right when Taylor is about to give up on being the hero, uh, the the voice of Poseidon himself speaks and says, no, you did a great job, Taylor. Thank you for bringing my trident home to me. Uh, just bring it to me and I'll take care of everything. Um, Darkanon arrives, of course, to claim the trident uh, in voiceover. I have to stress that. Um, <laughs> at, at which point, a massive uh you know, crash of thunder and bright light fills the room, blinding the guests. And then seconds late, hang on, six seconds later, <laughs> the guests open their eyes to discover that they have not been in an antechamber. They are now in the temple of Poseidon, deep underground, surrounded by waterfalls. There's fountains, there's shooting flames. There's windows out into the ocean where there are monsters and creatures swimming past. Darkanon arrives on one of these walls, uh, projection, demanding to be given the trident. Taylor sees the statue of Poseidon up on the hill and runs for it, but is intercepted by shooting water and shooting flame. And the trident gets stuck in the rocks and Taylor has to go back and try to pull it out. And Darkanon is yelling and Taylor is yelling. And ultimately, Taylor runs up the steps and puts the trident in Poseidon's hand, at which point the uh, smoke fills the area around the the, the the statue of Poseidon. Poseidon's statue disappears in a flash of light and big Poseidon appears on the screen oh. next to Darkanon. Then the two of them have the most Power Rangers like boss battle imaginable on these on these screens of water and through <laughs> with shooting flame and shooting water and lasers and smoke and uh, just in the nick of time Poseidon defeats Darkanon with the trident banishing him forever to the dark place. Uh, but at this point, uh, the city of Atlantis behind Poseidon in these these screens uh, appears to be exploding for some reason. And, uh, you know, we've really got to get out of here. Uh, Taylor has disappeared at this point, by the way. Um, and uh, Poseidon says, I'll send you back to the surface. You know, thank you for, for bringing me my trident back. Uh, you know, don't worry, you're you're no longer in any danger. Poseidon's blessing is with you. And then there's a huge crash of flame and water. And six seconds later, the guests find themselves <laughs> back in the antechamber that looked like a dead end. And then Taylor emerges from a wall down the hallway yelling, hey, everybody, this way, the, the exit's right over here. <laughs> and the guests and Taylor have saved the day, returned the trident to its rightful place. And Professor Elias Baxter, who has been missing, uh, appears on the radio to announce that you've saved the day and you've you've solved the, the mystery of the temple. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, first of all, yes, applause is in order. Wow. Um, so, so my first and most important question is, yes, um, you know, what was your first experience with this ride and why did it make such or it's not really a ride, I guess, right? Uh, this attraction. Mm -hmm. And why did it make such a uh, clearly like huge impact on you? Like, what about it is such such a unique standout experience? Yeah, absolutely. So, I uh, first visited Universal's Islands of Adventure in two thousand and two, a mere like three years after it opened to the public for the first time. Um, and I remember very little about that trip. I remember 
I, I was like 14, um, but I was more I was more focused on other things, I think. I just wasn't paying attention to certain things. And I was very scared of roller coasters, so I didn't ride a whole lot, to be honest. Right. Um, it took me a long time to kind of warm up to those. Islands uh, of Adventure is kind of a coaster park in a lot of ways. It sure, and it sure was then, too. Like, yeah. uh, Dueling Dragons was still there, and uh, the Harry Potter stuff had not yet moved in, obviously. And um, so I was kind of like, yeah, I'll just walk around and see stuff. I, lo I love theme parks, but I'm, I'm not really interested in riding the super tall Hulk coaster or anything like that. I remember the Spider-Man ride, which is exactly the same as it was and is still really great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I remember uh, the Seuss landing and being like, huh? And <laughs> um, I remember, you know, this Lost Continent thing, which totally, totally like came out of nowhere for me. I had never been to a Ren Fair at that point in my life, but I knew they existed. And so walking into the Lost Continent and being surrounded by like merchants hawking their wares and like a dueling dragon coaster and like people embracing the high fantasy, I was like, oh yeah, this <laughs> is good. We like this. I also didn't play D&D &D until I was like in my twenties. So this is all very like portentous um, looking back. Uh, <laughs> But what I do remember is Poseidon's Fury. I remember as a 14 year old, um, not wanting to ride big scary rides, but wanting to experience things. And the fact that it was a walkthrough was surprising, um, but very welcome for me. It was also hot and it was very cool inside of Poseidon's Fury. So that's, that's also a bonus for people looking for that kind of thing. But there is something really powerful as a kid and I'm going to lump myself in with kids because I was 14 um, there's something really powerful as a kid in wanting to have that make believe be proven real and knowing that there's no way that it is real but seeing the lengths to which someone will go to prove that it is even though it's not yeah. um, I, as an adult I like to say all the time one of my favorite parts about the Muppets or puppetry in general is that um, grown adults say yes to that like yes nobody's yes. nobody's like no that's not the real Kermit it's Kermit <laughs> like it just is right a hundred percent completely yeah. agree that's the best thing it, it I was rules. at a I was at a party a few years ago with somebody who had played Trekkie monster in oh. Avenue Q and brought Trekkie uh, and I couldn't talk Wait, to the person. No, you have real, to talk to the that's puppet. That's really Trekkie right there. That's yeah, Trekkie I, monster. I, I spoke directly to Trekkie the entire time. I do that's not remember so cool. the face of the person. That's so cool. <laughs> that's incredible. I love that. I love that. But so puppetry is, is what I would consider a, a more widely acclaimed acceptable way to have that make-believe be real, even though you're an adult and you know that there's a reason why it works the way it does. Um, but as a kid, especially as a teen, where you're like, I know this isn't real, but it's so close to being real that I'm gonna say yes to it anyway. I love that. I, I absolutely adore that. And going into Poseidon's Fury and having it be a walkthrough experience where everything is to size, everything is textured, everything feels old, it smells dusty, you can hear the creaking of the stone underfoot, um... And, and and you've got Taylor up there struggling away in their khaki on khaki on khaki outfit. <laughs> um, and and if you get a really good Taylor 
it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, you know, whether or not you care goes away. Because if the tailor is in the moment and really living this experience of everyone is gone, we're digging in a hole in the ground, what do you mean there's a dark force of evil trying to take this from me? If you, if that tailor is living it, the whole audience buys and they say yes. And the most magical thing is getting to the end of that experience, you know, as cheesy as some of the visuals can be, as, as you know, cliche as the dialogue is when Poseidon and Darkanon are fighting, you know, w- when we get to that point and, and then Poseidon defeats him and, you know, Poseidon says, it is done. And the music swells, hearing the audience lose it and just completely lose it in cheering and clapping, even though they know it's not real, that is amazing to me. And so as a 14 year old, I was, I was going through this experience. I felt included. It felt real. I was like one of those kids that really loved Indiana Jones. So this was scratching an itch for me. And the water tunnel, the water vortex is the coolest thing in the world. (laughs) No lie. It is so incredible when the, when the wall slides away and you see this tunnel light up in ocean blue, and then you watch the water, you know, sweep up and over. And then Taylor goes, uh, uh, well, I guess we're going to go through this together, guys. Come on, you know, and then everybody, it's, it's so great. It is absolutely so great. People who don't like Poseidon's Fury have lost a piece of their soul and I'm sorry for them. Wow. Wow. I, I, I gotta say, uh, first of all, absolutely breathless at the, at the passion with which you have described this attraction. And I, it has definitely sparked some really cool ideas for me. Um, should I also tell you at this juncture that I was a tailor? <laughs> you were a tailor? You were a tailor? Yeah. Th- that is absolutely, that was the that was the juncture at which to drop it. Wow. Yeah. You were, okay, so so Alice and I were doing a little bit of research, watching some videos yeah. of, of this attraction. Um, Taylor carries that entire attraction on Yeah, I gotta ask you, does your back <laughs> still hurt from carrying that attraction? Because it, it, it absolutely is like, the Taylor show. It is. And and it's the the stress on that one actor to bring this thing to life. It's I mean, people talk about the the proving ground that is the Jungle Cruise skippers. Oh this yeah. is this is on another level. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely just just the the amount of buy-in, like you said, buy-in is really what it's all about, right? Yeah. The, How much running would you say you did in a day because y'all i did so many steps i did so many steps <laughs> that's working wild. working that show um i mean i would say my back didn't really hurt but my knees did hurt sometimes from all the stairs um <laughs> you know because there, there's a lot of running around on stage but also backstage uh as well um it is not it, it is not an unathletic thing to do. Um, yeah. It. So I, I went through the ex- attraction as a 14 year old, thought, whoa, that was so cool. And then immediately like forgot about it when I went home, right? And then when we moved down to Orlando to pursue working in the theme parks as performers, we went through it because I remembered, oh, 
I know Harry Potter's in this zone now. I wonder if that stuff is still here. And Poseidon was still there. And I was like, oh, I remember I really liked this. We should go through it. And I, I like cried walking through it Aww. as an adult because I was like, I forgot. I forgot. And it was like, you know, it, it's like, um, it felt like going back to Narnia after you'd come home and like grown wow. up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I, I told Drew, I was like, I'm going to do this show. I have to do this show. And I was very, very thankful that among the things I got to do while working at Universal was was becoming a tailor. And it is, it, it's a point of great pride for me. And I, I, I absolutely treasured every single show I got to do. Even the ones where the fire alarm ruined everything. Wow. Even the ones where the water didn't go. Even the ones where there were only three people and it was 10 p.m. and they didn't care. Like, wow. I loved getting to do it. Wow. A absolutely, absolutely blown away. I love this. I love hearing you, who, you talk about this. And I want to go back to, there was a phrase you kept using while... Um, while describing your experience with it and um your 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 phrase was uh say yes to this yeah it's a very improv um thing to say um and that's i wanted to, to connect this um background to what you're doing now with the improvisational uh with the podcasting and the world building and you guys you know winning awards for improv podcasts and, and you know it's an actual play right yeah um mm -hmm. And, um, and then now you're talking about fire alarms and water not going off. Like what, um, how much like improv experience did you have going into that? And then what did, what did it teach you about improv and how do you, do you still use those lessons like today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, like many people, I did theater in middle and high school. And then I went to school for theater, uh, in Chicago. Um, we didn't have like improv classes per se that I had access to and living in Chicago everybody says oh what do you do and you say oh I'm an actor and they say oh so you do improv and you go no I'm an actor because well, they're, they're different like, things they assume um, you were in the second city I, right? I assumed <laughs> yeah um so I never actually have taken an improv class uh but I I did you know I did a four-year theater program for a bachelor of arts in acting um and uh, then after college, my improv training really came from working at the Bristol Renaissance Fair, which is um, just north of Chicago in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, where I performed summers and, you know, taught and, and directed a little bit as well at some point um, from about 2012 to 2016. Um, and that's, that's where I met Drew. Um, that's where we got together and, uh, that's where I learned how to talk to people and discovered that, um, you know, as much as people say, yeah, right. Or not really what they really want is to say yes. Deep down, they really do want to say yes. They want you to prove them wrong. Um, and it taught me, you know, that one of my, deep-rooted superpowers is being able to talk to anybody about anything um and that that absolutely lent itself to getting into the entertainment at at universal um and as far as like as far as poseidon directly uh there is a script 
And since much of the show is sound cues and voiceover, there is a large element of timing that has to be correct or the show flips and doesn't, doesn't work. Um, however, uh, it is also a, a huge opportunity to follow the same timing and the same beats while not necessarily saying exactly what everyone else says. Um, if that makes sense, like I, I would say that there are a number of tailors who were very good at not saying anything in the script whatsoever and totally selling a different show altogether in a beautifully seamless way. And there were some tailors that stuck pretty close to the script but made their own jokes, skipper style, I would say. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, so there was room, there was wiggle room and we were given permission to utilize that wiggle room as long as we were kind of um, not wrecking our own timing. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it makes perfect sense. Yeah, uh, we, we are big fans of a couple of the shows at Universal Studios Hollywood. Uh, probably most notably similar to Poseidon's Fury is like Terminator 2 3D, which you, you guys also had in Florida. We mm, did yeah. have it. May it rest in peace. <laughs> that was a it's great now show. Uh, the Bourne Experience. Right. Oh, uh, and and that was a multi-stage kind of. There are walkthrough elements to it, but you you ultimately end up in a in a 3D theater with live actors that do play out part of the show. And there there's always that element of like, oh, the person who's giving the presentation for Cyberdyne, like they're holding down part of the show, and they, they do have some freedom there based on how the audience is interacting with them. Um, but also that if anybody misses one of these stunts the show is going to stop for safety's sake. Absolutely. Um, and and that, I think, is where we've always like consciously known that the actors are stuck within their script, but that that wiggle room is really a fascinating idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also, we, we still have Waterworld over there, uh, which... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Waterworld's may, the best. May it, may it never rest. May it, may it live for a thousand <laughs> may years. May it live for a thousand years. <laughs> Long live Waterworld. Long live Waterworld, uh, yeah. Um, and and Waterworld is, is similar where we've actually, Alice and I, witnessed the show stopping for safety reasons uh, mm. because, because yeah, the timing is a, so tight. Kind of missed stunt, a missed jet ski stunt um, that resulted in the, like, and basically the ending of the show. Um, they were like, sorry, of... Waterworld will return uh, some other day. Yeah, um, because of a, an injured actor. It from, was uh, it was like pretty intense. From, we, from, from what we understand about those shows, that there was kind of a limit on due to the rules of, of how acting in these uh, attractions work. There was a limit on how many shows you could do a day. Was that true of Poseidon's Fury as well? A limit on how many shows you could do a day? Um, yeah. I don't know that there was like a like a max number of shows. Hmm. Um, I do know that, you know, like any like anything with theme parks during peak times of, you know, guests. So like summer peak, winter peak, you know, spring break, that kind of thing. Um, there were definitely an increased number of shows. So there would be more tailors on hand to cover that time. Interesting. Um and a regular tailor shift was six shows. Wow. Um, kind of spread out. So you the show is approximately 20 minutes, and then you'd get, you know, 15 or 20 off, and then you'd go go again. Um, That's wow. 
I, I can't believe six is a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much work. I mean, I mean, you are dodging fireballs for six times a day. That's yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, I mean, it was exhausting, but like, gosh, I can't, I don't even know like the word for it. Like I really, I would come home from a, t- from a, a Poseidon shift and be like, I worked so hard today and it was so worth it. Like it just felt good to do. And I don't know if some of that was just the physical like the adrenaline rush, the physical activity. I don't know if it's because I was emotionally going through that roller coaster every show that there was some catharsis involved. I don't know if it was like, it was great though. I, I absolutely loved every time I got to be there. I was going to um, ask Drew about, um, about your theme park experience. Oh uh, yeah. Um, at universal I did, I had two, two roles. Um, I was a raptor expert at Jurassic Park. Oh, fantastic. And I also was the conductor of the Hogwarts Express. No. Uh, Yay. And in Hogsmeade. Long time you're listeners. Gonna blow, you're going to blow, <laughs> blow Buddy's mind right now talking about the Hogwarts Express. That's Sorry. his favorite thing on the planet. Long time listeners of the show know that my, my, um, like my pet project thing like the the thing that i always imagine the most when i'm imagining my ideal theme park is you should be able to ride a ride into your themed land yeah like yeah. i I've always wished for that and it's not because i thought it up or because i'm pr- particularly clever it's because the hogwarts express made such a strong impression on me the one time i've ridden it mm-hmm. going between uh diagon alley and hogsmeade is such an experience so seamless and and just absolutely something that I, I wish more parks would expand on so mm. did you get I to go love... there and back did you do both ways we didn't, we didn't do both, both ways both. we oh. had one day in orlando oh. we had 36 hours in orlando <laughs> uh, we flew in on the red eye went to the park <laughs> yeah flew out on the next red you guys eye. are our uh, kind of people for real yeah you absolutely are um <laughs> it, the interesting thing so the train itself um is its own thing and the conductor of the Hogwarts Express, I never got to ride the train. Like, I would go on the train all the time. It was a lot of fun. It was right. always fun to be backstage and to watch the train go by, um, like, go overhead, which is always a lot of fun, back and forth. Um, but I was, I would call myself um, an, a, a human interface for, for Hogsmeade. Huh. Um, I was the character that stood out in front uh, by the Hogwarts Express and would greet people, would say hello to people, um, would ask kids, you know, hey, did you get your wands today? Is this your first time using magic? And that kind of stuff. Um, completely improv. Uh, I might have a picture with you. Oh, you might. <laughs> when were you I, working there? <laughs> uh, I started, goodness, I think like September, 2019. I'm trying, when did, when did we go? Oh, it no, was 2016. Was, it was 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, All right. Wasn't you? Uh, that would have blown my mind because I, <laughs> I distinctly remember that character and being like, you're cool. Let's take a picture. <laughs> 20 bucks. You have a picture with Wayne. Um, Wayne yeah, is, is the guy. Uh, he was there when the park opened. He's the guy who trained me. I bet you uh, a gallon of butterbeer is Wayne. Um, <laughs> we don't have to find the picture. I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it was a great gig. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but at the same time, like I, like I said, I would consider myself a human interface. So uh, a lot of theme parks, in my opinion, uh, you'll go to them nowadays and there'll be a screen or something that you interface with, right? A lot of attractions. Mm. Um, 
There are a lot of attractions in in other parks, though, usually with equity actors that has a person as the interface. They are the person you talk to that will give you the experience. Um, as the conductor of the Hogwarts Express, my job was to make sure you felt like you were in, the, in Hogsmeade the moment you stepped in there. Uh, so I was the one who waved, said hello. If you needed anything, I was there to send you on your way. Um, huh. If you, they were like, hey, where can we see Harry? I would then go, oh, Harry, I, I know Harry Potter. Everyone knows Harry Potter. I don't know him personally, though. He's probably up in class, though. It is 10 o'clock in the morning. He's probably there. Huh. <laughs> uh, so you should probably, if you want to go see him, you should probably go there. But other than that, I don't think you're going to see him anywhere else. So in that moment, I am already going. I've already given them enough information. Like, he's in an attraction. We don't have somebody who's actually Harry Potter walking around. You're not going to find him that way. Um, but I can't tell them. I can't just say that. I have to theme it right. in such a way. And so the conductor was completely improvisational and a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to be the conductor. And as a as a raptor expert, you were you the one with the raptor puppet? Yes. Okay. okay. So I, I will. I'll, I'll pull back the curtain on that. Uh, <laughs> Blue is a puppet. Oh <laughs> um, dang! They, they didn't break the laws of science and 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 make. What are you talking raptors? about? She's a puppet. She blinks. She breathes. She, she blinks. She breathes. Puppets don't blink. People. Yeah, oh, oh, Blue does. <laughs> um, it was really funny because. As a raptor expert, my job, again, I'm a human interface for the experience. Uh, it would be so boring for you just to go up there and be like, all right, let's take a picture with this raptor. <laughs> there we go. Have a good day. And that's basically <laughs> what they do now, thanks to Pope. Um, but mm. before, I was the raptor expert. I wasn't Owen Grady or, you know, Alan Grant or anything like that. But uh, I was there to, I would always tell people, I was there to make sure that they were safe. Like that right. was my job, uh, and that we were going to get really close, and that Lou had been, uh, she'd been okayed for human contact, and that uh, we were trying to get her used to the smell of humans, so we're going to keep putting people in there to get her acclimated to as many humans as possible. Um, and that was completely improvisational as well. But kids would ask me all the time, is she real? And this goes back to what Ali was saying. Uh, a little bit about, you know, to me it's magic. It's the uh, people want to say yes, right, to to the experience, and this is the closest I think we get to magic is somebody saying yes. Mm -hmm. And when they say yes, you have the opportunity to give them literal magic and make them forget that this is a puppet. You're in a theme park, and instead be like, this thing is very real, and she's very dangerous. And I don't know if we're going to get out of this alive. Oh. But we're going to do it. And the funny thing was, is because we had no script, we had no script whatsoever as Raptor experts, some people would go up there and they'd get a type five. It would, they have, they'd have their jokes. Uh, they'd have like their set jokes and their set things that they'd say. And they, people would come out laughing. And I saw that and went, that doesn't feel real to me like if i was actually going to go see a, a velociraptor and get close enough i would be i I'd, I'd shit my pants i'd be i'd be so scared <laughs> exactly so i would always play up the realness of it so kids would ask me is she real and i would go absolutely 
And they're like, but she's a, she, the dinosaurs aren't real. And I go, are you sure about that? <laughs> and I'd, I'd look at them. I'd like get down their level. I'd look at the eye and I go, I'll tell you this. She's got a brain. She's got a heart. She's got blood. And if you are not careful, she will show you yours. Like that. Wow. That is is exactly the six foot turkey line. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Except. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. I, uh, it was, it was really funny. I broke my arm, uh, a couple of years ago and I have a, I have a big scar. Yeah. It was super funny when you broke your arm. That was hilarious. Yeah. It was very funny. (laughs) Um, but the funny thing about it is that when I went back to work, uh, um, People would, this one kid asked me, hey, how big are Blue's teeth? And I rolled up my sleeve and I measured my scar and I went, that's not that big. Oh, wow. Perfect. Oh my gosh. And it's that level of, of like, yes and to this that makes it worthwhile for me. And it makes, it makes it worthwhile to have actual real life people in your parks doing this kind of stuff. Um, because without it, that's a screen and we can, we can say, we can say no to a screen. A screen is completely okay to say no to. Um, but to see a human being like look you in the eye and actually have like a bit of fear back there, you have to go, wait, is she real? (laughs) Chef kiss. And that was always my favorite part. Yeah. Increasing the stakes with, with your role as a, like you said, a human interface um and and the power that that has to create that buy-in yeah uh we've talked about the word magic on our show uh because because the only real magic that that a theme park can conjure is that that sense of things being realer than they are Mm. um and oh man i i'm so wow what a story I'm blown away. I, I not only are we talking talking to podcasting luminaries, we're talking to legends <laughs> of the theme park scene. Um, and I, Alice, I I don't know how to proceed except to say wow. Um, and then and then to ask you both one central question, which is kind of the the heart of what I was hoping to do uh, with today's podcast, and and um, kind of get to the intersection between that improvisation, that buy-in, that collective storytelling, uh, and, you know, theme parks as they relate to your current creative projects, which are mostly tabletop RPGs, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And and the podcasts that they create. Uh, So my question is this. Um, You know, in, in Poseidon's Fury, there's this beautiful moment where Taylor is is framed against the the water tunnel which everybody knows is the the famous like centerpiece of this show mm-hmm. if you know if you know nothing about poseidon's fury that's the that's the thing you know that's the one with the water tunnel yes and they're framed there as the as the water is swirling and the lights are on and they're silhouetted from the audience's perspective and they walk through and then the gates open and the audience walks through too. And that to me was like, oh, oh no, oh my God. Nothing is like this. Like this is something else. And yet that's kind of what theme parks are. That's like the the central thesis is that you can walk into this experience. 
Like you get to spend time in it three dimensionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to be part of the story. And so my question is, you know, what what have from that that experience, those those experiences of, of asking audiences to buy in and believe and be part of it, have you brought to tabletop RPGs? And also, what can theme parks do to make that more central because i think that when when that's happening when that's firing on all cylinders when you're stepping into the experience and saying yes to it that's when parks are at their very best um and so as improvisers as actors as creatives as builders of worlds what is something that theme parks need to kind of make that something that audiences know and expect and can feel almost constantly and and do you think they're already doing a great job i guess that was a multi-part question i apologize (laughs) for going on i'd like to respond in the form of an essay okay Um, (laughs) so i i love the way you phrase this because this is something drew and i talk about literally all the time Um, every every time we walk every time we go to any park ever um (laughs) we talk about this you're our kind of people (laughs) (laughs) one of the best things uh world building wise not just theme parks not just you know books not just movies not just video games right whatever any medium the best thing you can do to engage with your audience is to give them permission to see themselves in that world um if you zoom out and if we if we pretend that we're aliens and we've never experienced harry potter before um and we look at it in terms of logistics the thing that people love about Harry Potter is not Harry Potter. It's not even Hermione or Ron. It's not even like the the you know the story that's been told or the way it was told across seven books. The thing people love about Harry Potter is it made them go, I would be a Hufflepuff. My mm. wand would be eight and a half inches, swishy, made of holly with a unicorn hair core. My robes would be, and and they get to have that imaginary, um, uh, like personalization, that personal relationship, that customization, right? That's why video games that have those customizable options are great, you know, because you get to customize, even though the story has, you know, Maybe it has restrictions on which parts of the story happen when, right, in a video game. But you get to customize what your character is wearing. You get to customize your responses to NPC prompts. Um, in a tabletop RPG, there, there are, all of the settings are off. You can do whatever you want in a tabletop RPG. You can play Dungeons & Dragons and follow the exact uh, build of a rogue in the rulebook and start there if you need to have some kind of, you know, format to follow. But you can also say, no, I'm not going to do that and build a rogue that is completely off the wall. And this character has this history that has nothing to do with anything in any of the official books. The the thing that people are really attaching to in tabletop role-playing games now more than ever, I think, is that customization and that access that unfettered access to their own imagination and to the imaginations of the people they're sharing the story with, that is incredible. 
And when theme parks do it well, they do it because they're allowing you to see yourself in the story and they're, they're inviting you in. So one of the reasons why you know, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios Orlando and Universal Studios Hollywood is making money hand over fist is because people who grew up with that and longing for that personal touch, that personal, you know, customization are able to go and spend money on my wand, my robes, my house scarf, my this, my that. And they get to feel like they're living that moment, that 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 thing that they've craved, right? Um so, you know, one of the things that Drew and I talk about every time we build a world for something is how does what we're building invite that interaction between the actual thing that we're telling and the audience? Um, like with Skyjack's Courier's Call, it, 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 was a, it was a key building factor for us that we wanted to make an actual play podcast um, uh, well, we were in, asked to make the actual play podcast by James D'Amato, who created Skyjacks um, for his own podcast, uh, Campaign Skyjacks. Uh, but so he said, I want you guys to 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 build a an actual play spinoff, an official actual play spinoff that's all ages friendly, because regular Skyjacks is definitely not all ages friendly. No, um, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, and so. I mean, that was the main thing is Drew and I sat down and we said, okay, how are we going to allow and invite people, not just kids, but anybody to, to see themselves in this world. And what we ended up coming up with was, well, I don't, we don't want to do a magic school. <laughs> we don't want to do, you know, we, we don't want them to go to a school for something mm -hmm. like, that happens so often. It's like, well, where do kids go? Kids are in schools. Kids right. go to school. Yeah. Um, and but that's not an adventure. No, no, it's not. Um, but but we also we also looked at it in terms of like regular actual plays. Like we didn't want them to be, um, for lack of a better, I'm trying really hard not to use this phrase, and I can't think of another one. Like we didn't want the the main characters on the show to be murder hobos and like go adventuring mm -hmm. from town to town doing whatever they needed to do to get stuff done. We didn't want that. And so ultimately, what we decided is. They're going to, these kids are going to be learning a trade. These kids are working. These kids are uh, learning a career path that will allow them to travel the world, see wild and, you know, possibly previously unseen things and to have access to information and a support network that uh, not only encourages them to travel the world and learn these things, but, you know, supports them in that, in that arc. Um and I also was like, I can't think of any magical trades that people are out here learning in, in like middle grade and young adult fiction. I feel like everybody goes to school or like maybe they have magic powers and they're learning from their parents or something. But like like going to trade school, basically, like when you become a novice with the Swiftwell Courier Service, you are entering a trade. Essentially, you are learning valuable skills um, for that trade and things that will permit you to have a job and have a lifestyle and uh, open doors for other opportunities. So I would say the main thing for me is how how does what you're building invite people in? And and is that something that people will want to be invited to? And I, I think I think my answer for it, Al, like that, that right there, Ali's answer there is the nutshell. It's like, how, how do we make everyone feel welcome in this world? I mean, 
what is a tabletop RPG setting but a theme park? What is what is a game master but the human interface? Um, that's that's just what they are synonymous to me. They're they're one and the same. Um, but the thing that I would add to that is why why do we play tabletop RPGs to begin with? Why do we go to theme parks? Um, it's to escape, right? And we wish to see ourselves in a different place, in a different time, being cooler than I th than we think we are. And that in involves including and elevating people. Uh, we play Dungeons and Dragons just for off the top of my head. Like we play that game because we feel so cool in it. We at the end of the day we fought the dragon, we got the treasure, we saved the town, we did things that we didn't think we could possibly do. And, you know, we've done it. Interesting thing, um, so I got my master's in acting um, from Northern Illinois University. And one of the main things that I came away from that program, besides, you know, a, a master's degree, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is we talked a lot about how your brain cannot tell between what is real and what is fake um, when it comes to fiction, really. It's why a horror movie works. It's why we get scared when we watch it. We know it's fake. We absolutely know it's fake. It's not even in the same room as we are. <laughs> but we still have the elevated pulse. We sweat. We get scared because your brain cannot tell the difference between a stimuli that is definitely fake and that is not. Your brain can't tell the difference. It's why a romance novel works for us. Um, and in learning that, it's the same thing. It's it's hyper there for, for tabletop RPGs. Those stories that you do with your party fighting a dragon or fighting the lich or going on a quest and a journey. Later on, when you tell those stories, it's like you were really there. Mm -hmm. And... And those stories have weight and meaning to you because to your brain, they actually happen. Now that's magic to me. Mm -hmm. And so we play these games to feel that way. And I think where tabletop RPGs kind of fall flat, I think in some places where, where, uh, where theme parks kind of fall flat, it's that they don't include and elevate people. Um, at the end of the day, you can go to a theme park and you were just there. Uh, you just went and saw the shows. You just, sure, you met Belle, but <laughs> you didn't have an experience with Belle. You just met her. She said hello, you gave her a hug, and that was it. Right. You didn't feel a part of that story. I, so my other job in, in Orlando was I, I worked for uh, the Jedi Training Trials of the Temple show. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, I was Van Zelmar. I was the, the Jedi Master in it excellent and though i mean i would always it, it's a it's an amazing it was an amazing show it was a completely amazing show i burst into tears every time i saw it me too um, because i <laughs> i loved it so much and the fact that like man it's something like 150,000 kids go through that show a year wow like that's the potential there's like it's 30 kids for 15 shows a day and like that's the potential for it so it's like wow. 150,000 kids potential to go through that show and 
at the end of every show, those kids are Jedi. Like mm-hmm. they feel like Jedi. They they have internalized it, and they're gonna go out in the world and they're gonna like do what they're gonna do. But we have included them and elevated them because we're not saying, oh, you know, you're not a Jedi. Oh, I guess you have to leave now. Everyone walks off that stage with a pin, saying that like they went through Jedi training. Huh. And so we have included and elevated those children to be a part of the story. It's the reason why. Um, have you guys been to Batu? Have you been to Star Wars Land? I have, yeah. I have yeah. not. <laughs> wow, buddy. It's, I know. It's Get real it together, good. man. Jeez. <laughs> it's real good. What but... have you been doing for the last year? They were <laughs> open for what? Like three months? Was that a not enough for you? It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the reason why the park works so well. Yeah. Right. Um, it's because Gosh, we, yeah. they've taken those people and been like, hey, this is your story. Because I don't think people at theme parks, it used to be, I'd say 20 years ago, it was okay to just kind of go and be there. Like, it was all right to go to a theme park and kind of, to have the story happen around you. Mm -hmm. But in the last, I don't know, like 10, 15 years, it's become this thing where like, we want the story to happen to us now. And, and that is really where the including and elevating uh, your, your, stu- like your people, if you can do that in your games, but also in your theme parks, you've won them. People will come back a hundred times to be a part of that. I, I would like to take a moment briefly. Drew has used our key phrase, include and elevate several times. And I wanna do a quick little shout out there. Um, the Drew and I both learned that sort of method of interacting with guests in immersive situations like this um, from our very dear friend and mentor, um, Anne Elizabeth Shapira, who uh, played the, the role of Jane the Fool at Renaissance Fairs for about 20 years. Um, she literally wrote the book on being a character at the Ren Fair. There oh. is a book available called Easy Street. Um, and it's by Anne Elizabeth Shapira, and it talks a great deal about her experiences in playing Jane the Fool and doing Renfair stuff, but um, a lot of it carries over to what it's like to perform and, 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 and be in those immersive theme park situations as well, um, that it, it, it has influenced the way we build worlds, it's influenced the way we do podcasts and write, write stories, um, it's influenced the way we perform inherently so if if you're at all interested in um learning more about that and and that sort of methodology and that that way of thinking and way of accessing because it really it really can break all the way down to your daily existence as well that like um if you uh go to the grocery store and you interact with a couple of people like you need somebody to get something off a shelf for you and then the person who's checking you out and the person who's bagging if you look at those people and and you um you are able to include them in your day in your world by talking to them by smiling at them by greeting them however and elevating them to a a slightly higher status than yourself uh by thanking them for their expertise and their work and their effort um that can make 
an entire universe worth of difference into how they see you, how they interact with you, how they will interact with the next person they interact with. Um, and in a performance level, that makes you know a universe of difference in a theme park setting. Um, because like we were talking about the buy-in, we're talking about people saying yes to something that if you can invite them into what you're doing and put them at a slightly higher status than you yourself are performing at um, socially, then they they get that 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 good chemical rush that they don't get in their regular everyday lives and that makes that makes the magic happen so again that's easy street by ann elizabeth shapira definitely gonna check yeah i am i am on my way to googling a way to purchase that book um so i i've heard i've heard both of your answers your essays um I, <laughs> thank you i would like to i'd like to give them both a pluses no thank you. Thank a plus you. pluses oh um oh. but but i gotta say elevate and include include and elevate in in that order um is this perfect wonderful encapsulation of our favorite themed experiences i think absolutely though, though i do wonder if sometimes that's difficult to do in like these big theme park attractions where you get told this this happens all the time with the, with the um the interactive ish attractions you get told that your participation is important uh, yes. like we need you to we need you to hold up your hands so that we can escape the the yeah. collector's collection need, rocket uh, raccoon wants you to put your hands up oh you're <laughs> you're you're driving the the jeep through the temple of the forbidden eye like things like yeah, that yeah, where yeah. where sometimes the the barriers between uh being able to say yes and being asked to say yes can kind of get in the way from like a, an attraction design standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering like for you, is it about that human interface, adding that human face to these attractions to kind of allow for that flexibility, that ability for somebody to really ask you to do something or really ask you to be part of it or even to be a cipher for you living through it. Um, like, is that, is that sort of key? Cause in your in your experiences that that seems to be the uh the the unifier right the thing that that is kind of carrying you through not not to mention the uh the incredible work that happens at ren fairs which are usually usually smaller scale but Mm -hmm. usually much more person to person Mm -hmm. in fact that's like the whole appeal of a ren fair is all the cool characters you're going to interact with at least Mm -hmm. at least for me Oh, and, and like the turkey legs, but like... <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta save the turkey leg. We gotta pay that tithe. Let's go. <laughs> uh, but is that is that where it's at? Is that like the, the big key, the human element? I mean, yeah. I feel like, yeah. Because, so, it's, like you said, buddy, the, the theme park uh, industry has really tapped into, well, we have to do something to let the guests know that they're living this adventure on the ride. They're not just watching it. But when it's all automated, um, the way so many rides are, right? And, and like you said, you know, Rocket Raccoon says, put your hands in the air or else. Like, <laughs> and then if you don't, the ride still goes, right? Like, right. It's, the guest yeah. knows, especially an adult guest, knows that it's automated, right? Um, so maybe as a kid, you know, getting onto Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey and having Hermione say, on the count of three, say, um, oh, I don't remember what she says. She says something to make the the thing fly, yeah, and no one says it. No one says it. Like oh, I, I worked oh, that I attraction, it. and nobody <laughs> says it. Um, 
Uh, I definitely say it. I definitely <laughs> say it. I always put my hands up for Rocky Raccoon. Like we are I, that kind of person. No, we're we're a hundred percent those people. Yeah, I don't look. I yes, don't look and. at the eyes of Mara. Never. I've never seen them. Oh no, I stare. I stare that dude down. For <laughs> I sure. looked once. Okay. <laughs> I always stare him down because I know we've got to get into the next room. Yeah. <laughs> but it. But it's a, yeah. It's the the participation. It's it's a little more difficult, I think, to get adults to to play unless they're us. <laughs> right. That there's a, but when there's a human being there in front of you. So saying, uh, no, the dinosaur is real, and if you put your hand there, you will lose it, sir, um, <laughs> is a totally different level. Like, having a human being there to say, you know, I don't know, guys, I I've got the trident, but I don't know what to do. I've completely failed you, and I'm so sorry. Um, my fa I gotta say, so there's a moment where Taylor's like, all is lost, this is a dead end. I've got the trident and we're all safe in here together, but I don't think there's a way out. And if we all die, I just want you to know that I'm really, really sorry. And a lot of tailors play that for laughs because, you know, of course, that's not the end. Of course, it's not a dead end, whatever. But I would, <laughs> I would, um, I would lock eyes with someone, usually a kid, um, sometimes like a mom. I would lock eyes with someone and I would go for the Oscar. Like I would start crying, <laughs> not like big over the top tears, but I would, I would look at someone and I would get real quiet and I'd say, I just, I'm so sorry that I let you down. And the best thing in the world was when people would go, no, Taylor, it's okay. You're doing great. <laughs> like from the back row Aww. and me being like, but, are you but sure? That's it. Like that's, that's it. it. That's the buy-in, right? But if yeah. there wasn't a person there, if it was just voiceover or a projection or an animatronic, then you lose that. You lose that completely. And I think the other thing that comes to mind, and I'm sure you're thinking about it too, Drew, um, is great movie ride. Um, mm. That I didn't like that ride. <laughs> what did you say? I never got to go on it. I never liked that ride. Yeah, Drew didn't like it. I loved it as a kid, but I loved it because of that human element. So there's a Spieler driving the car through the movies, and occasionally the animatronics will like say something to the Spieler, and the Spieler will respond, and it's like, oh, neat, we're interacting. And then you get halfway through, and the car breaks down. And um, someone from one of the movie scenes is a real person and they hijack the car oh. and take you and try to drive you through the rest of the movies. Um, basically, like, this is my ticket out of here. You know, everybody <laughs> shut up. I'm driving, you know. Um, and then there's a there's a great, you know, movie twist where you think you're you think your spieler is gone forever. And the, the mobster or whoever gets sidetracked because you go through an Indiana Jones scene and they're like, oh, treasure. And they get off the car to go get the treasure only to find the treasure is cursed. And then your spieler emerges from the sarcophagus triumphantly and takes you back and like you do this. Right. So, but like that little element of movie magic, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. And then you go, oh, they didn't have to go that far, but they did. You know what I mean? <laughs> they did that for us. They did that for yeah. us. And it, even if it wasn't that good, I can appreciate <laughs> that they went there. They went to that length, right? But and without that person um, to connect with the audience and to connect with the guests and to um, not just spiel, but to tell them this story that you're living right now is real and I am living it too. And I think that's the key. Like you can have a per like there's plenty of times you'll have a human interface and it will just be an okay attraction. Like, like you were saying, Taylor carries that show 
And if you have a bad tailor, that's why people don't like that ride. That, that's right. true. Yeah. Um, if, but I think the thing that really sells it is truth. Mm-hmm. And if you, as an actor, can find a moment to connect with your audience in truth, they are far more willing to say yes. It's the same within with your tabletop RPG. If you can find truth in the moment and get your players, who is your audience at that moment, to say yes because of the truth of this moment, you got them. I would always, as a Raptor expert, try to get my audience to breathe with me. Um, I'd be like, I can see you all are super nervous, so we're all just going to breathe together. Inhale in and out. And having that simple action of them breathing with me sunk them into it. And suddenly this was real because not only are am I breathing with them, but we are doing this together. And I would try really hard to always find moments in my shows where I could find truth. Uh, when I was a Jedi Master, there was a line in the show that never worked. Um, I, I watched it a hundred times before and didn't matter who Vanzel was, who the Jedi Master was, it never worked. And it was basically, the Jedi Master says to the apprentice, um, you're very good with the saber and the lightsaber. And the apprentice goes, well, I did learn from the best. And uh, Vanzel goes, um, oh, what does he say? He says, you flatter me, though it is true. You, you say, he, he, he goes, uh, they go, because it's, it's women too. Uh, you flatter me, but it is true. Hmm. And and there's like uh-huh, like there might be a, a laugh, but it, no one ever laughed. And people would try to do it for laughs, and they try to do it for you know something, but it never worked. And I was always proud of my show because it always worked for me. And people asked me backstage, "How do you get them to 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 like have a reaction in that line?" And I would look at them and I go, "Oh." I think of all the people Vanzel has killed with a lightsaber. Wow. And suddenly that line doesn't isn't just like, well, you know, that is true. Ha ha. It becomes <laughs> it becomes you're right, though it is true. Yeah. And it, it becomes a commentary from Vanzel going, Yeah, I'm really good with the saber, but that's not why I'm a Jedi. Yeah, is that a point of pride? Not necessarily, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, yeah, like this moment is it's like you are very skilled with saber. He goes, "Well, I learned from the best." And and Vanzel, my Vanzel, would always be like, "Yeah, you did," but remember, that's not why we're here, right? I mean, we're here to learn the saber to teach these kids, but that's not why a Jedi has a saber. Like, and it became true to me in that moment, and people would always laugh because. They're like, oh, oh, what is this feeling I'm having? Mm-hmm. And I think that is the thing. That is, you can have a human interface and it won't work. But if you have a human interface and they connect with truth with you, that is where it, the that's where the money is. Yeah, and I, it's funny when you started to talk about the interface character and a character you can really sympathize with. I started to think about, ironically, uh, like animatronic spiel characters that are the that are like the lead character of attractions. Of course, I'm thinking about Rex from from Star Tours, now C-3PO. Yeah. And and how that's so fundamentally different than having a person there. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, how that character is not fully present. And nobody's telling Rex, it's okay, you're doing fine. 
Like, oh, it's well, your first day. Don't worry about it. Oh, well, we are. Well, we do. We are that kind of <laughs> <We're> person. <those> <laughs> but even even the smallest little pieces of of interaction with guests that that are delivered with that truth, with with that theming, uh, can be the difference maker for an attraction. And I'm I'm drawn to things like you know the haunted mansion with with the uh with the ghost hosts right mm-hmm. like we've got spooky butlers here it's awesome and also when you get one that says something like drag your bodies to the dead center of the room they and they really sell it uh there's there's more magic there than in something that is just a recording yes. as much as a recording can become iconic and important oh yeah and, absolutely and emotionally resonant um but yeah that's it's it's about the magic of the people and it's about i love that idea of of the status and elevating the guest as part of the experience mm-hmm. and and saying i'm here doing my best for you that being part of the character which is a bit of a trope int- interestingly mm-hmm. oh man mind-blowing mind-expanding <laughs> um absolutely fantastic literally immersion theater is everything to me. I got out of grad school and people are like, I'm going to LA. I'm going to New York. And I'm like, I'm going to a rent fair. And they're like, why? <laughs> like, you just you just yeah. did three years of intensive acting training. Why are you going to a rent fair? It's where some of the best actors I've ever met work. It was like, yeah, like this, this is this is the next step yeah. in, in theater. Is this immersion theater idea. Yeah. And no one does it better than Renaissance fairs, and nobody does it more successfully than theme parks. Right. That's a good way to put it. We touched a little bit on Galaxy's Edge and how how it was painfully obvious that they went to a bunch of Ren fairs and took notes because there are certain <laughs> yep. things in Galaxy's Edge and in the structure of it that we were like, mm-hmm, <laughs> I know where you got that from. And but like trying. in a good way. Like, yeah. Oh, yes. This little facade looks exactly like the uh, the Arizona Renaissance Fair, the one that's uh, built into the desert. They have like a permanent structure for their Renaissance Fair it's out here in in Arizona. Totally on another level out there. Yeah, yeah. it's outrageous. Absolutely. And it, you're you're right. It like the booth, the like sales booth built into a wall facade um, to to hawk your wares and your creatures and your toys and everything. Mm-hmm. Are that's yeah. I mean that that's Galaxy's Edge is just like a really nice Ren Fair. Yeah. Do you guys know about the hotel? Yeah, we're really excited. Yeah, we're, we're deeply invested in its success and deeply hesitant for its execution. Yes, and yes. Deeply, <laughs> deeply too poor to participate. Oh yeah, also it's, it's out of the budget forever. <laughs> yeah. All three, all three, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I can't wait to find out what they do with it, like to see what they're, they're making. Do. A lot of big promises. Yeah, they make a. I mean, they made a lot of big promises with Galaxy's Edge. That Let's they talk a big game. They didn't kind of fulfill on well, either. And I will say too that like we were very lucky uh, to attend the the cast preview for the one in Orlando, and um, we had the best day ever, literally. Um, and we closed it down and until they kicked us out at like 10 p.m. and it ruled. Um, but <laughs> I will say that we were fortunate enough to visit several more times before COVID happened, um, and we saw a distinct shift in cast member. I don't want to say performance, but that's really what they were being asked to do. Yeah. Um, we all knew that was going to happen. But. We saw a distinct shift in cast member performance during cast previews for Galaxy's Edge and cast performance 
like right before COVID when things were shutting down. Like six like, months after. Yeah. yeah. Like the, we were waiting to go into Smuggler's Run on the cast preview day. We were all stoked. The four of us had made up like a backstory and like we all had different planets we were from because we wanted to see how far this was going to go, right? And so we're standing in line. We're, wait, we're waiting to get put into our pod, right? And the girl uh, is standing there and she's like bouncing on her heels and she's like, so are you guys uh, just here to pick up some extra credits from from the, the shipping co? And we were like, oh yeah, you know, we were just in town. We, we need to make a few alterations on our transport before we, uh, before we leave orbit. And she was like, oh, that's so great that you have your own ship. I really want my own ship. Maybe if I keep Aww. working, I'll finally be able to afford one. And we were like, oh, wow. are, you, are you from Batu? And she was like, yeah, I'm from Pika. It's a small fishing village just north of here. And we had a whole Whoa. conversation with her in about Aww. 35 seconds before we got Amazing. into the cockpit. And it ruled. And then six months out, these poor cast members are exhausted. And they also don't have time because there's too many guests. Um, not paid for it. That's that's not. Yes. That's not part the of thing, it. the 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 issue we saw with it was not just that they were asking for um, untrained actors to have character on stage and to be able to interact with people in character while doing their jobs. It was also that they were being paid regular rates instead of getting some sort of bump and cushion for being performers for being entertainment. Wait. They weren't getting entertainment bonuses? So if you talked to anybody in Galaxy's Edge who was in merch or food and beverage or attractions, they were being paid for merch, food and beverage, (gasps) and attractions. No way. And they made this big deal about um, how... Like, the opening cast for for Galaxy's Edge were handpicked from internal, you know, people... Like, you could, like, put in, like, oh, I would really love to work at Galaxy's Edge or whatever. And they handpicked the people who loved Star Wars the most so they'd have the most fun working there. But they didn't do anything to protect them or to sustain them or to pay them for the extra effort that they were having to do while in character. Oh, my God. I... I worked merch on Downtown Disney in in Disneyland uh, in the year 2009 um, (laughs) when when we had the store called Studio Disney 365. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, it was like the Bippity Boppity Boutique, but it was uh, Disney Channel themed Mm -hmm. because 2009 was like peak. It was, we had Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Mm -hmm. the Jonas Brothers, all of them like at the same time. Um, And... I and so it was hair makeup you know the whole thing chatting you know we have have a kid on the stool for a half an hour doing their hair and you're supposed to chat and like make them feel like a rock star or whatever the whole time I got I got paid like almost an entire dollar more per hour for that job than when I was at the world of Disney store the regular merch store down the street I I got an entertainment bonus there's no I cannot believe that they would do that to the to the poor people over at Batu. That's outrageous. Especially when the promise of Batu is the performance of Batu. Mm-hmm. It's it's the idea that the, the world is alive, that everybody is a character, that everybody that you're speaking to, um, and you. And and that's part yeah. of the saying yes, right? Like you're supposed to have your data pad and you're supposed to be part of the adventure and, and earn credits by doing smuggling runs and stuff like that. and. Uh, that it's not a priority is especially at the management level for for cast members who already uh, are are underpaid and underappreciated in mm-hmm. so many cases yeah. uh, is is tragic 
Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, I feel like how how could it how could Batsu ever hope to uh, compete with a Renaissance fair where the interaction is much more personal and there are far fewer people and the people there like part of their livelihood part of what they're doing is based on the performance right like mm -hmm. there's that that level of buy-in is hard hard to get on a on a cast member's wage <laughs> yeah it's it's tough and i think there's i think there's two two factors for large scale theme parks that they they kind of miss the step on it's one and i think it kind of comes back to both in this one it's trust like, I don't think they trust the patron or the guest to behave. And they don't trust the person to do, to go the extra mile. Mm. I have and, seen some incredible misbehavior yes, in theme parks. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And like, and that's the thing, because they, they can't trust the people that they're, that are paying to be there. At the same time, you can't trust the person that you've put there to deal with that as well in a, in, a, in, a, in a good way. And because of that, people aren't paid what they're worth. And and like, I mean, when COVID happened, uh, there was a huge fight, huge fight between uh, the the acting union and, and Disney because the acting union had things that they wanted for COVID protection and Disney was like, no, we're not gonna do that. And because it cost more money. And so they just cut all of equity yeah yeah and and it was it was a it was i i mean we were all flabbergasted we're like what's the point of the union if they can just do this right um but it, it's it's that to me it's the fact that one people are being paid what they're worth and two uh people are uh management can't trust uh in, in either direction i think that's a good point drew and i think that 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 begs some begs a, a, a deeper question about like the culture and the fact that like Disney, for example, being the monolith that it is, set the bar for theme parks versus amusement parks um, in its inception, right? And yeah. that over the last several decades of its existence, people have collectively developed a concept socially for how theme parks work and how uh, their behavior should be. And obviously, I mean, Alice, I've seen some stuff too. Like it's wild what people think they can get away with just because they're inside a theme park instead of at a real train station or yeah. um, you know, a government office, for example, or something. Um, but you know, even with Ren fairs, there are some smaller Ren fairs or some newer Ren fairs, perhaps you know, ones that haven't been around for decades that people show up to, and they're kind of like, "Oh, this is my first Ren fair. This is really neat. You can walk around, you can eat food, you can go see some shows, and then you go home at the end of the day." And right. then there are people who show up who are like, "This is the this is the one place I get to wear this costume that I made with my own two hands, and I'm so excited to walk around and wear this costume and pretend." that I'm my D and D character right. and that's another level. And then there's also the added culture, right. Of the people who perform professionally at Renaissance fairs and tour the country, um, going from show to show to show, uh, are paid to perform on those stages. Yes. But they are also, uh, engaging in the hat pass 
uh, at the end of their show. They they usually have a line at the end of their show that says, you know, if you enjoyed this and you want to support us, um, we'll be at the back of the house to say hi, shake hands, take photos. And if you want to drop a dollar or five or ten in our hat, we'd, we'd love that. We'd be really grateful, right? right. Um, that's a very common thing at Renaissance Fairs. It has been from the beginning. But there are some newer shows and some smaller shows where that culture of the hat pass does not exist yet. And so... Mm. There are performers who do this professionally, again, mind, and their whole life, their every day, is going from show to show to show. Um, and they do their hat pass at the end of their show, and nobody puts any money in their hat. And it's A, awkward, B, super embarrassing, yeah, and C, a huge devastating hit to their projected finances as performers. Right. Um, people think, oh, I don't have to tip them because I didn't interact in the show or I wasn't the, the chosen, uh, volunteer or whatever. Right. Or, you know, they made me laugh. I'll give them a dollar for all five of these performers on stage right now. Right. Um, and they don't think about the way that gets distributed or the way that has any impact on the performers because they assume they're being paid and they are being paid. But depending on the size of the show and the budget of the show, the hat pass may be where they make their money. And yeah. it's not like living in a big city and and having somebody play guitar in the subway and have their case out and people can throw change in there. It's a totally different situation. But because these shows don't have the the culture built up around them, to encourage that hat pass participation, um, people end up not wanting to do small shows or not wanting to do new shows because the culture hasn't been built up. Um, and that's why people go to the bigger shows like uh, Southern California Pleasure Fair, Bristol, New York, Arizona, Texas, where that culture exists in a subconscious way. Even if you've lived there a long time and you've never been to the show before, you show up at the Ren Fair, you see people throwing money at these performers and you're like, oh, I got to go to an ATM. Like, right. I don't want to be the guy, I don't want to be a narc. I don't want to be the guy that doesn't uh, pay these guys for what they're doing because I just watched Barely Balance flip each other over each other's heads while juggling fire. <laughs> They're like, the best. Right. We, we're friends with them. We love them. They're great. <gasps> um, but yeah, so uh, it, it goes back to what I was saying about the theme parks that we have taken the existence of Disney, um, Disneyland and Disney World, decades of existence of them setting the standard for how guests should behave, how cast members should behave, how the two interact and mingle. And now they're seeing through Renaissance fairs that people don't just want to see the thing happen. They want to be a part of the thing happening. And they were like, oh, no, Universal took J.K. Rowling away from us. We have to do something that's right. going to compete with this in a logistical way, not just in a financial way. And so they're they're putting all of this money into you know, you love Star Wars. We know you do. Come over and be in Star Wars now. Which, yeah, and there's so much of that that oh personalization and seeing yourself in the world that you talked about built yes. right into the design. I mean, yes. building a lightsaber. Uh, and, and even like being a rebel versus being part of the First Order or like rooting for different, you know, people love to go there and root for the freaking stormtroopers. Um, uh, never understood it. <laughs> I yeah, don't. Every time houses. I see Kylo I Ren, I yell, call your mother, because everything <laughs> would be solved if you just did. Um, That's amazing. But you know what I mean? So, so the culture is shifting. Like Drew said, it's clear that they that they see where that magic is happening and they are now at a corporate monolith level trying to rewire 
the attitude and the interaction level. And they also are trying to make it safe for them financially, which is difficult to do. It is a massive undertaking and it will take years for them to make that shift if they do it successfully at all. Right. Um, but the thing is, is that the people deep down, they, they do want it. They do desperately want to go to Star Wars and stand in front of the Millennium Falcon and cry because it's real. And then, oh no, Chewie just walked out of it. How is this happening to me right now? Right. And, <laughs> and you know, and people want to go to Harry Potter world and they want to get their wand at Ollivander's and then run around doing all the magic things. Because can you imagine if they were selling wands that didn't do magic? Can you imagine the audacity? I, I do not imagine it. Um, I choose not to. <laughs> I choose not to look into that timeline. Um, <laughs> but but they are they are carefully, studiously rewiring that subconscious culture, um, that that preconceived notion of what it is like to go to a theme park, um, and it will take years, decades, you know, to to get to that point. But if we continue on this road collectively as a society, um, with this escapism and this interaction. You know, fingers crossed, guys, we may actually get a holodeck someday. Yeah. And that's and really what this is about. The main the main goal of all themed entertainment is constructing and implementing the use of a holodeck. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. That's what <laughs> well, we want. We'll, we'll either get a holodeck or we will get Westworld. You know Maybe what? Maybe both <laughs> if we're lucky. Maybe yeah, I, I, we, it's it's phases. You know, Westworld is just on the way to the holodeck. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and and you're right. It's that expectation of being welcomed in. It's that it's that knowledge that you can't just walk around Fantasyland and choose from a collection of four disparate films to ride the ride of, and then you ride the ride of that film, and it's basically the film, and then you go to the next one. It's not like that anymore. The industry has shifted completely away from that, and the expectation of being entertained by everybody all the time being welcomed into the world by everybody all the time and that expectation not rising with uh you know protection for casts and uh, you know actual guarantees of wages for casts um which is so crucial so yeah it is a it's a it's a dangerous tightrope we're currently walking yeah and we're i think that's the thing it's what's so exciting to me is that we are at the edge of it. Like, we are mm -hmm. the frontier, basically. The, the frontier land, if you will, um, of this whole new era. And it depends on what we do next, what corporate does, and what we do as, as guests and patrons, and what we do as actors and, and cast members in, in whatever we're doing. It's up to us to figure this out. And that's what's so exciting to me. Yeah, I've definitely yeah. been to smaller themed interactive things where there's like a, a code of conduct or like a list of rules that is made very clear to yeah. guests um, of, of expectations that you can have for performers and for yourself while you while you go through them. Usually, honestly, they're focused on like your your horror nights or your your scary farms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where where the interaction is much more intense, mm -hmm. um, but. I feel like I feel like growing that culture is going to be a really crucial part of any any steps that are made in the in the future where we tell people this is what this is clearly what you can expect but also what we expect of you. Um and if you want to live in this world, you got to you got to agree to that. Um and and hopefully that's done ethically. Um we can only hope. Yeah. 
exactly. Well, Alice, Allie, and Drew, it sounds like our conversation on theme parks, tabletop RPGs, Poseidon's Fury, and the future of immersive themed entertainment has come to an end. Unfortunately, uh, it has to come to an end. <laughs> We're out of time. We could talk about this forever, and we want to thank you guys so, so much for joining us. Thank you pleasure. so much for having us. We love this stuff. Now, Allie, Drew, you're not just illustrious guests of the Those Happy Places podcasts. You have many and various uh, projects going on right now. Uh, where can our audience find you and what should they be looking out for in the near future? Absolutely. Um, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at dreams to become. You can learn more about uh, my writing and other things that I have worked on over the years at dreamstobecome.com. Um, you can also check out our Patreon if you're interested in supporting our creative endeavors going forward. Drew and I can be supported at patreon.com slash whimsy artifice. Uh, Drew, do you want to mention the podcast we do too? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at worlds to forge uh, or you can find me and Ali at our podcast. We are doing... Um, Skyjack's Courier's Call. Uh, there's Season 1 is already done for that. Season 2 will be coming. Uh, we'll be doing a Kickstarter for that in the very near future. Uh, you can also find us at uh, A Night of Shreds and Patches, which is a brand new actual play uh, that you can find us as actors on. Um, you can find that at echosap.com as well. And yeah, I think that's everything. I mean, that's why I'm married to you, Allie. Is there anything else? Uh, I think I think I mean you hit the Kickstarter, which was really the big check mark. Uh, mm, yeah, that, we'll be we'll be announcing one. that Kickstarter soon um, on social media, and uh, we're looking forward very much to jumping back into the world of Sphere and bringing these good good courier kids back into the sky. Um, yeah. So we hope we hope y'all will check that out. Both uh, of your actual plays are, are both such gifts, and uh, I highly recommend them both. Uh, just as a listener myself, so. Thank you so much, buddy. That means Thank a lot. You. That, that yeah. means a lot, yeah. Uh, and uh, I believe that we will now say goodbye to you both. But uh, again, can't thank you enough for being on the show. Uh, it has been an utter pleasure. And I hope that uh, we can continue this conversation some other time and uh, expand on it. Talk about some other favorite attractions, perhaps. Yeah, Absolutely. we'd love to have love, love to have you guys on again, for sure. I would love that. That would be great. All right. Uh, well, with all of that said, thank you both. And I'm going to stop recording. Wow, Alice, what an amazing conversation with Ali and Drew, two actual legends in my book. They were absolutely amazing. Best guests ever. I'm so excited that we got to talk to them and we had like the best conversation. Yeah. My only regret about that conversation is that it ended. But the good news is, Alice, is that the conversation does continue online. Yes, the conversation continues on the internet, which is our favorite place to be. You can follow the show on Twitter at Happy Places Pod, and you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Alice White THP for those happy places. And I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D U Q U E S N E. If you want to engage with us on the internet, that's uh, more than 280 characters, you can always join our Discord server. Yeah, that's right. We've got a Discord server where we talk about all sorts of things, theme parks, Star Wars, and other. <laughs> <laughs> um, but seriously, it's a great place to hang out and talk more about anything that you heard in this episode or anything else that you want to talk about with us. Uh, make sure that you're reaching out on Twitter for that link. 
And if you want to support the show, you should hit us up on our Patreon. Yeah, that's right. Patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to go if you want to support the show monetarily. It is uh, a cool place full of much bonus content and reward tiers for any budget. Uh, Though we do understand that, you know, money is tight these days. And so if you don't have the money to support the show at the moment, uh, one of the best ways that you could support the show is letting people know that it exists and that you enjoy it. Yeah, send us a tweet share uh, on Facebook, uh, send a smoke signal out to your favorite neighbors, like tell everybody about the show. Uh, and if, yeah, if you want to, if you have the means and can support us monetarily, join us on patreon.com slash those happy places. We've got stickers, we've got buttons, we've got bonus episodes. Come on down. Yeah. And you know what, Alice, one of the reward tiers for our Patreon is that uh, folks who pledge at a certain level get their name read out at the end of every episode of every show we do. Yes. Our patrons that we uh, that are so gracious and give us their support, we get to read their names at the end of every episode. Uh, And here they are. We got Charles G, Oslam C, uh, Ian E, April L, Reed J, Joe W, and Kate Thank you to all of our excellent patrons. And uh, you know what? Thank you to uh, Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for the music that you've heard throughout this entire episode. Absolutely. You can find uh, Kevin's music, uh, which he releases with a Creative Commons license, which allows us to use it so long as we say thank you and link everything in the show notes. So check the show notes for the track names and uh, find Kevin at Incompetech.com. Thank you, Kevin. And Alice, I think I hear our theme music Our theme music, which is Golden Gate by the California Feet Warmers featuring Phil Alvin. It is that song by those people featuring that guy. And you can find this song and many other songs like it at CaliforniaFeetWarmers.com. Alice, thank you for being on the show with me. Buddy, thank you so much for doing the show. This was a great episode, a fun conversation, and I'm looking forward to many, many more. And to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places.